Due to the graphic nature of this investigation and trial, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes graphic discussions of sexual assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. It seemed like just another evening at the police headquarters in Phoenix, Arizona, on March 13, 1963. Detective Carol Cooley had just successfully apprehended 22-year-old Ernesto Miranda. Miranda was charged with the kidnapping and robbery of Barbara McDaniel, as well as the kidnapping and rape of another 18-year-old woman, given the pseudonym Lois Ann Jameson. In a stroke of fortune for the police, Ernesto, known as Ernie, even admitted to his crimes. He agreed to write up a confession and sign it under the direction of Detective Cooley. As this report was filed, Ernie was taken away to jail to await trial for his charges. But already, a seed of great change had unknowingly been planted within the justice system, Although the evidence against Ernie was quite damning, this wouldn't be an open and shut trial. In fact, it would lead to years of legal battles ranging all the way to the United States Supreme Court. The resulting decision would change the way law enforcement was conducted and coin a phrase well known to every American citizen today. Beyond this, it would ask a deeply troubling question to all those faced with the case of Ernesto Miranda. Is a guilty man still guilty if the structure of the justice system is aligned against him? Do his rights, in the end, matter just as much as his victims? In the history of the following trials, this criminal was granted a chance at reprieve, a chance that might help those unlawfully accused in the future. It complicated the legacy of Ernesto Miranda and the police system that arrested him. And it complicated our understanding of the fundamental tenets of the U.S. Bill of Rights. How should we determine a person's guilt? Do we defer to the evidence discovered by police or the verdict reached by a jury? And what happens when the evidence and the verdict don't line up? Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Not Guilty, a ParCast original. Each week, we look at complicated criminal cases that test the limits of innocent until proven guilty. This week, we enter into the aftermath of Ernesto Miranda's arrest. The crime was seemingly solved, but the greatest legal threat still lurked in the trials to come. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com merch for more information. Following his arrest, Ernesto Miranda was to be tried twice. The first would be regarding his robbery and attempted kidnapping of Barbara McDaniel. Then he would face the charges of rape, robbery, and kidnapping of Lois Ann Jameson. 
His defense attorney was 73-year-old Alvin Moore. Moore was a no-nonsense attorney with a record of defending hard-to-defend clients. His background consisted mostly of civil cases, so it was a surprise to those in the Phoenix court system when he began to represent so-called indignant criminals. Although his defense of Ernesto Miranda would eventually lead to one of the most famous Supreme Court hearings in U.S. history, he was paid only $50 for his entire service, a little over $400 today. Moore dove into the sad history of Ernie's life. At age six, his mother died. He never had a close relationship with his father or his brothers, who all joined the military. A middle school dropout, Ernie was in and out of boys' homes for violent crime charges until he enlisted in the U.S. Army at 18. Eight months later, Ernie was dishonorably discharged for aggressive and inappropriate behavior. He spent a year in prison for robbery before meeting Twyla Hoffman and her two children. He got her pregnant, and they moved to Mesa, Arizona, outside of Phoenix, in 1962. The first defense plan Moore approached was an insanity plea. Ernie was clearly a social misfit, and Moore wanted to claim he was not in his right mind when he committed crimes against McDaniel and Jameson. His client was examined by two psychologists, but the prognosis wasn't useful to Moore. They denied that Ernie was out of his mind when he committed his acts. He was fully aware of his skewed decision-making, a sociopath, not a psychopath. We're aware those terms have fallen out of use within the DSM, but that was Miranda's diagnosis at the time. The first case, Barbara McDaniels, proceeded to trial on June 18, 1963, in the Superior Court of Maricopa County under Judge Yale McFate. The prosecution was led by Lawrence Turoff. The odds were stacked against Moore because of the written confession. Turoff called Detective Carol Cooley to the stand first. In addition to discussing the robbery, Cooley mentioned that Ernie threatened to rape McDaniel during the attempted kidnapping, but she had been able to convince him not to go through with it. This detail had not been included in the official trial overview, as Ernie was only being charged with rape in the Lois Jameson case. But the cat was out of the bag now, and Turoff could freely explore this side of the case when questioning McDaniel. Moore knew this was a sunk cause. The jury returned with a unanimous decision within hours. Guilty. The entire trial lasted one day. Judge McFate would also oversee the Lois Jameson trial, so he decided to save the sentencing until both proceedings were completed. The trial of Miranda's crimes against Lois began the next day. Outside the courthouse, the woman known as Lois Jameson prepared. Today, she would take the stand and face her rapist, hopefully for the last time. Detective Cooley would return as well, alongside his partner on the case, Detective Wilfred Young. Prosecutor Turoff kicked things off unconventionally. Judge McFate asked for the prosecution's opening statement, but Turoff waived the opportunity. He wouldn't be preparing the jury at all for what was to come. He knew the jury only had the bare essentials of the case. When Lois took the stand, 
Turoff gently guided her through a short biography. He wanted to build tension as the jury wondered whether this young girl was the victim. And then Turoff asked her about the events of March 3, 1963. Turoff expertly brought to life the horror of that night, the sound of Miranda's car as he almost ran Lois over, the metallic click of his switchblade, and the tightening of the ropes that bound her in the back of his car before Ernie drove her off into the night. The jury sat in shock and silence as this 18-year-old woman described events that no one should have to experience, let alone relive over and over again during the course of a criminal investigation and trial. Finally, Lois finished her testimony. Turoff took a beat to let the full weight of her story sink in, and then he approached the witness stand and asked a simple question— Is this man you have just referred to in the courtroom today? Lois said yes and pointed to Ernie, sitting in a shabby suit, hunched down next to a worried Alvin Moore. She added, sitting over there. What else needed to be said? Turoff ended his questioning, leaving Moore with the significant task of regaining all of this lost ground. Things were off to a terrible start, And so Moore took a desperate tactic. He made Lois go through the entire night again. He hoped to catch her in a contradiction or a lie. Indeed, he took the exact same tactic that the detectives originally had during the investigation. He shamed and blamed Lois for what happened to her, hoping that some sort of hidden female ineptitude would clear this whole case up and exonerate Ernie Miranda. He even implied that Miranda seduced Lois on March 3rd instead of kidnapping her. As it did for the detectives before him, this tactic led him completely off track and the jury soon came to despise him. By the time Cooley took the stand under Turoff's questioning, it seemed like all was lost for Miranda's defense. Moore was more careful in his questioning of Cooley, He was calm and only took a few pointed jabs at the given testimony. The most effective moment arrived when Moore grabbed onto the fact that there was never an attorney present at any point during the questioning of Ernie Miranda by Phoenix PD. Cooley admitted there was no attorney brought in, but that this was standard practice at the time. They weren't expecting to extract a confession so quickly. Moore jumped down Cooley's throat, He immediately issued an objection to Judge McFate, declaring that the written statement should be struck from evidence. But McFate overruled. According to Timothy W. Moore and Clark Lohr's book on the trial, Mirandized Nation, it was acceptable practice for Phoenix police officers and detectives to obtain a confession from a suspect and then ask them if the statement was true. If they said so, uncoerced, the officer or detective would ask the suspect to write out this information. Judge McFate upheld the validity of this procedure. Moore had run out of runway for any of his arguments. He ceased his questioning of Cooley, and Miranda's statement was read to the jury. All that was left was the closing arguments. Turoff closed his prosecution with the same simplicity he had used to open it, 
He told the jury, quote, Miranda admits it. This is his written statement. You have read it all. Moore returned to his weak argument that Lois's stated narrative to the detectives had always been fractured and that she wasn't reliable. It was a pathetic attempt, but there was nothing left for Moore at this point. It was over. Within minutes of deliberation, the jury returned with a unanimous guilty verdict. On June 20th, 1963, Judge McFate could finally present Ernie Miranda with his full range of charges, 20 to 30 years on each count of rape and kidnapping. According to Miranda, the story of America's right to remain silent, McFate also sentenced 20 to 25 years in the Arizona State Penitentiary on the $8 robbery charge, which was to run concurrently with the sentence on the rape case. His first opportunity for parole wouldn't arrive until the 1970s. It seemed over for Ernie Miranda. But Alvin Moore wasn't so certain. He believed that Cooley had made a mistake during the process of collecting Miranda's written statement. Perhaps Moore wanted to redeem himself for his failed defense. Perhaps he had a genuine sense that there was something broken about a system in which suspects could incriminate themselves without legal counsel present. But Moore would not give up the fight just yet. It didn't matter whether or not Miranda was actually guilty. That was small potatoes. No, this was a much bigger issue revolving around the rights of all people in this country and it deserved a much bigger stage. Coming up, a 1960s full of civil unrest. The Supreme Court was faced with many issues regarding the rights of the accused during this decade, but one prominent lawyer for the ACLU would make sure one name stood out above all the rest. Miranda. And now, back to the story. 22-year-old Ernie Miranda was sent to prison in the summer of 1963. Detective Carol Cooley was promoted to sergeant rank, and Lois Jameson returned to her life and anonymity. The county attorney of Maricopa County requested that the Phoenix Police Department be more cautious during their interrogations, but no official change was ever made. The process of justice had done its job, and all should have now drifted back toward equilibrium. But this wasn't a time of equilibrium. In fact, it was the beginning of the biggest decade of social unrest in the United States in the 20th century. Laws across the country were being re-examined and reconstructed. Much of this was due to the fact that the unfair arrest and treatment of minorities by the police was finally coming under a much-needed spotlight. The burden of reinterpretation at a federal level fell upon the Supreme Court. There were multiple cases during the first half of the 1960s that involved the reach and limit of policing. In 1961, MAP v. Ohio further restricted unreasonable search and seizures of property without a warrant. In addition, Gideon v. Wainwright was brought before the court in 1963, dealing with the Sixth Amendment. The ruling was a federal mandate that state courts provide law counsel in cases where defendants cannot afford their own. Finally, 
the most pertinent might have been Escobedo v. Illinois. It involved a shooting in 1960 when a man named Danny Escobedo was taken in for questioning. The police held him in the interrogation room, despite his request to speak with his lawyer, until he broke down and implicated himself in the crime. Escobedo did not admit to killing the victim, but did say he was present during the murder. He did not realize that this admission carried its own criminal charge, something a lawyer could have told him. When this was brought before the Supreme Court, the ruling eventually sided with the case of Escobedo's rights. The court declared that the guiding hand of counsel would have been essential in advising Escobedo of his rights in what was certainly a delicate situation. This was the stage when legal aid and advice were most critical. In June 1964, the court signed this ruling as a guarantee of Sixth Amendment rights that covered legal counsel at all significant stages of criminal interrogation and procedure. Yet Alvin Moore had no idea that he was wading into the flow of judicial history as he typed up his appeal for Ernie Miranda. He submitted this to the Arizona State Supreme Court, and it came to a hearing in 1965. Despite Moore's best effort, the Arizona Supreme Court upheld the decision of Maricopa County. It was, quote, loath to disturb the trial court's judgment under these circumstances. In reference to this case's connection to Escobedo v. Illinois, the Arizona Supreme Court wrote, Miranda had not requested counsel and had not been denied counsel. We further call attention to the fact that defendant Miranda had a record, which indicated he was not without courtroom experience. While some state Supreme Courts had extended Escobedo's federal ruling to cover those suspects who had not requested counsel, Arizona decided against following that lead. With that, Moore seemingly exhausted all of his options. Miranda remained in jail, and a path toward a higher court seemed infeasible to this 75-year-old lawyer who had long ago argued his best cases. But Robert J. Corcoran was ready to take up the mantle. Corcoran was once an Arizona state attorney, but he became a very public figure in the Phoenix wing of the American Civil Liberties Union in the 1960s. Corcoran made civil liberties his centerpiece issue, so his finger was on the state's pulse when the Arizona Supreme Court turned down the Miranda appeal and ruled against expanding the scope of Escobedo. Unlike many in the state, he saw the new restrictions of Escobedo as necessary in this morally gray world of policing. In Miranda's case, he saw the opportunity to go even further than the incremental change from the Escobedo ruling. Corcoran reached out to Moore. The aging civil lawyer was more than happy to turn over Miranda's case files. He didn't have the stamina to handle this at the level Corcoran envisioned. With the files in hand, Corcoran then handpicked two legal eagles to handle the vanguard of their Supreme Court push. John P. Frank was a renowned constitutional scholar who specialized in constructing detailed and strategic brief documents. But for the face of the argument, who would do all the talking, Corcoran turned to John Flynn. 
Although Flynn had never presented anything to the Supreme Court and wasn't as experienced as either Frank or Corcoran, he was a spectacular orator. With Frank running research and the game behind the scenes, Flynn would be the voice for their concerns. In the summer of 1965, Alvin Moore wrote to Miranda and encouraged him to accept Corcoran as his new legal aide. Miranda wrote to the ACLU superstar, quote, Your letter, which I have recently received, has made me very happy, Mr. Corcoran. To know that someone has taken interest in my case has increased my morale enormously, end quote. With that, Frank and Flynn set to work on the Miranda brief under Corcoran's supervision. This brief wasn't just the initial pitch to the Supreme Court that would influence their decision to accept or decline the case, but it would be the written foundation for the entire trial going forward. Frank's argument was centered around what he called the full meaning of the Sixth Amendment. He believed it was foolish for suspects to have the right to an attorney, but not a stated opportunity to acquire one. The brief was fully centered around the question of what police need to tell a suspect before any interrogation or arrest. In other words, the burden was being fully shifted to the police, as Frank, Flynn, and Corcoran believed was necessary. The 2,500-word petition was turned into the Supreme Court for review in October 1965, and it would make it to the oral argument stage. Miranda v. Arizona was officially born. Now the ball was in John Flynn's court. Flynn and his team stepped into the Supreme Court chambers on February 28, 1966, It was an intimidating environment. The entrance is two solid oak doors, with the engraved symbol of the Supreme Court stretched across their expanse. From the first moment, all who enter face the long table at the far end of the hall, where nine empty seats await the justices. On the left side is a bench for the petitioner, and on the right, a zone for the defendants. Dead center, there's a podium of dark mahogany that stands out from all around it. From this spot, all who address the justices must speak. They cannot move or gesticulate wildly or engage in any of the theatrical sport of normal trial court. They stand here with only the power of their voice and the logic of their argument. And all who take command of this podium are continuously forced to gaze at two little lights attached just above the table's surface, a white one and a red one. When the white one lights up, the addressing council knows they only have five minutes left to make their case. And once the red light buzzes, time's up. Soon enough, the justices arrived they settled in for what would amount to seven hours of argument across three days. John Flynn stepped up to the podium and presented his case. Unlike Corcoran and Frank, Flynn was a relative unknown, especially in Washington. No one, from the justices to the defense squad from the state of Arizona, knew what to expect from this man. The details of the initial Miranda investigation may have been lurid and disturbing, but unlike Alvin Moore in those earlier trials, Flynn wasn't here for Ernie Miranda's sake alone. 
he saw himself as a representative of the people of the United States of America. Miranda's crime might have been awful, but Flynn wanted to make sure something useful came from it all. So he began to speak, and it was immediately clear that he was a sincere and humble man. He spoke clearly and calmly. He set up his entire argument by framing the question to the justices as such. This wasn't a case about whether or not to warn suspects of their constitutional rights, but when. Flynn refused to cede any ground right from the start. He addressed the Escobedo ruling from this same team of justices. He applauded what it put into motion, but claimed it simply was not enough. There was still no national standard practice, and the Escobedo ruling was hobbled by the fact that the suspect in that investigation had requested a lawyer and been denied one. The ruling still gave police too much legal wiggle room to avoid offering counsel to suspects in the first place. With that groundwork laid, Flynn moved quickly into a summary of Miranda's arrest and confession. He tied this case into the social issues of the time by describing Ernie as a young, uneducated minority who most likely had no real conception of the rights afforded to him under the U.S. Constitution. Flynn made this very clear to the justices by flat-out stating, quote, Miranda was called upon to surrender a right he didn't fully realize and appreciate that he had, end quote. But Flynn had yet to even reach the crux of his argument. Recall that the brief put together by John Frank was always zeroing in on the Sixth Amendment. This amendment to the Bill of Rights focuses on the rights of a defendant in court, meaning the rights to a fair trial and an attorney if one desired. The Supreme Court ruling in Escobedo, along with other related cases, all focused on the Sixth Amendment as the right in question. But with his same quiet and controlled tone, John Flynn soon shifted the argument entirely. The distinction between the Miranda case and Escobedo was due to the fact that this was not an issue of the Sixth Amendment, but the Fifth Amendment, which covers the rights of due process and protects from self-incrimination. By moving focus to this amendment, Flynn was tying together all of his previous statements— the violation of Miranda's rights began long before the courtroom and all of the protections offered there by the Sixth Amendment. Furthermore, the right to an attorney was not just limited to a suspect's time within the court system, but from the moment they stepped foot into a police station as a suspect. Justice Potter Stewart stepped in to question Flynn at this point. If a lawyer was to join a suspect so early in the process, specifically what could they inform this citizen? Flynn had an easy answer at the ready. A suspect had the right not to incriminate themselves, the right to say nothing at all, the right to be free from questioning by the police department, the right to ask to be represented adequately by counsel in court, and the right to have counsel furnished to them by the court if they could not afford one. With this statement, Flynn had done two momentous things. He had completely tied together the Fifth and Sixth Amendment rights when it came to the process of arrest and courtroom trial. 
and he had spoken out loud a set of phrases that would become commonplace in American culture very soon. Yet, no one knew that at the time. Instead, Flynn noticed the white light on his podium had been lit for a good while. He only had moments to wrap everything up. When Justice Hugo Black asked Flynn to clarify if the Constitution protected all Americans in all situations, Flynn might have had to suppress a smile. It was a perfect setup for his grand finale, circling everything back to civil rights and inequality. He told the justices, It certainly does protect the rich, the educated, and the strong. Those rich enough to hire counsel, those who are educated enough to know what their rights are, and those who are strong enough to withstand police interrogation and assert those rights. With that, the white light turned to red, and John Flynn rested his case. Over the next three days, a defense counsel of Arizona lawmen fought back against Flynn and Frank— Overall, the court transcripts would span to nearly 300 pages. But from the eye of history, a few words stand out from all the rest. Those spoken by Flynn in his initial argument regarding the right to remain silent, the right to an attorney, and the right to inform a suspect directly just what was at stake when they entered into legal battle with the United States police. Without knowing it, John Flynn had coined the Miranda Rights. After this, we'll learn the Supreme Court's final determination and how their decision reverberated through both the personal life and fate of Ernesto Miranda and the lives of all Americans going forward. And now, back to the story. In February of 1966, John Flynn stood before the U.S. Supreme Court and presented his arguments in Miranda v. Arizona. Now, four months later, the Supreme Court prepared their opinion, the official term for a Supreme Court ruling. There's no higher authority when it comes to the interpretation of United States law. On June 13, 1966, the Supreme Court came to their decision on Miranda v. Arizona. The vote was 5-4 to four in favor of Frank and Flynn's argument. Chief Justice Earl Warren authored the majority opinion and was joined by Justices Black, Douglas, Brennan, and Fortas. Justices Harlan, Clark, White, and Stewart dissented, and White wrote the dissenting opinion for the record. Chief Justice Warren read the entire 60-page opinion aloud in the courtroom. He said, There can be no doubt that the Fifth Amendment privilege is available outside of criminal court proceedings and serves to protect persons in all settings in which their freedom of action is curtailed in any significant way. The prosecution may not use statements stemming from custodial interrogation of the defendant unless it demonstrates the use of procedural safeguards effective to secure the privilege against self-incrimination. The Supreme Court took inspiration from Flynn's words in establishing those safeguards and officially established what would come to be known as the Miranda Warning. 
The first tenet of this warning would be the suspect's right to remain silent. Secondly, the suspect must be informed that whatever they say can be used against them in a court of law. Police interrogation, therefore, was now raised to the same stature of the courtroom when it came to the rights afforded by the Fifth and Sixth Amendments. Following naturally from this new entanglement between the amendments was the third tenet, the suspect's right to counsel. Finally, the fourth tenet was informing the suspect that if they could not afford counsel, one would be provided for them. In many cases, only the rich can afford counsel, and those who cannot simply confess. This would explain why poor suspects confess in greater numbers than wealthy ones, and why prisons are full of impoverished people. Only through the police's conveyance of all four tenets would they be in line with this new interpretation of constitutional law. With that established, police stations across the nation could go about issuing these warnings however they pleased. Back in Phoenix, the police department decided to create a fleet of business card-sized pamphlets for their officers. When they made an arrest, the officer could hand over this printed Miranda warning, with the suspect's rights clearly spelled out in both English and Spanish. At the bottom, in bold letters, was the following message. Do you understand these rights? Will you voluntarily answer my questions? By the end of the decade, the Miranda warning was well known across the country. A new precedent had been set. But there was still one hanging question. The question of Ernesto Miranda's initial criminal trials. With this new ruling in place, the verdicts against him could now be retried. These new trials would proceed without the written confession as evidence, as it was now constitutionally deemed inadmissible. John Flynn took over as Miranda's defense attorney. Following his victory in Washington, the Justice Department of Arizona feared the results of this trial. So they brought out the big guns. District Attorney Robert Corbin would lead the prosecution. And sadly, once again, the woman known under the pseudonym Lois Ann Jameson would be brought back to face her attacker. This brave woman returned to the courthouse of Maricopa County under Judge Lawrence Wren. Even Prosecutor Corbin thought it might be a lost cause. They could not use the confession, but they could also not have Lois speak about her identification of Miranda at Phoenix PD either. The Miranda decision in the Supreme Court had canceled out everything that happened after the police picked him up from his home. With a blind jury, there simply was not much evidence to prove Miranda as the culprit at all. But Corbin was determined to, quote, go down fighting. There was still one chance to put Miranda away as he belonged, and it arrived via an old face, Twyla Hoffman, Ernesto Miranda's common-law wife. Mere days before the trial began, Hoffman opened her mail to find a notice from the welfare authorities. It turned out that Miranda wanted to leave her and had even attempted to sue for custody of their children while he was still behind bars. Fed up with Miranda, Hoffman dialed Corbin, and he put her in touch with Carol Cooley, 
The lead from the Miranda investigation visited with Hoffman and collected her testimony. On February 15, 1967, Corbin brought Twyla Hoffman in to testify against her common-law husband. Flynn immediately raised an objection. Marital spouses could not testify against one another. Wren overruled, citing the fact that common-law marriage was not recognized in the state of Arizona. Under Corbin's questioning, Hoffman gave testimony. She had visited Ernie Miranda on March 16, 1963, just three days after his arrest for the attack on Lois Jameson. During this visit, Miranda verified what he had written in the statement to Hoffman. He had raped and robbed Lois. Additionally, he asked Twyla Hoffman to visit Lois and convince her to marry Ernie. In his deluded mind, he thought his victim might actually agree to this to save him from prison. And ironically, he relied on the non-legal status of his current union to Hoffman to attempt this. But now that status came back to bite him. It was over as quickly as it began. Within an hour, the jury reached a unanimous decision to reaffirm Miranda's prison sentences. Almost a year after Ernie Miranda's name reached the highest levels of the U.S. justice system, he was once again sent to prison, rightfully and without any loopholes this time. Flynn attempted to overturn the Barbara McDaniel robbery charge through a similar effort in 1971. That time, Miranda had to be tried under a false name because he was too well-known in Arizona to form an unbiased jury pool. Still, the original verdict was again upheld. In the end, Ernie Miranda was imprisoned from March 1963 until he was paroled in December 1972 at age 31. With nothing to him but his name, Ernie cashed in. A minor celebrity in the Phoenix area, he would drink and cavort around town and sell autographed copies of Miranda warning cards for beer money. He acquired these cards by finding police officers and telling them who he was. As the officers of Phoenix PD were stuffed to the brim with these slips of paper, they easily parted with them. But it wouldn't take long until a parole violation sent Ernie back to prison for another year. He was released at Christmas time, 1975, just in time for another arid winter in Phoenix, Arizona. A month later, on January 31, 1976, 34-year-old Ernie Miranda was living off of his brother's couch and drinking his days away. That day, he went to one of his usual billiard spots. As a gambler, a cheat, and an aggravating personality in general, it didn't take long for a fight to break out. Ernesto Miranda ended up gutted with the same switchblade he once used to threaten his victims. Officers arrested a man named Fernando Rodriguez as a suspect, even though the true killer was someone called Ezequiel Moreno Perez. Perez escaped the law, never to be seen again. But when the police cuffed Rodriguez as a suspect, he had the Miranda warnings to protect him. They handed over one of those slips that Ernie loved to sell and asked Rodriguez, do you understand your rights? 
Rodriguez nodded. Yeah, I understand my rights. Even from beyond the grave, Miranda's name wasn't going anywhere anytime soon. Now, as the years have gone by, Miranda v. Arizona has been challenged at the level of the Supreme Court multiple times. The most common criticism, as documented in Gary L. Stewart's comprehensive legal work, Miranda, the Story of America's Right to Remain Silent, has always been that it makes policing harder for police. Police can no longer interrogate a suspect quickly before a suspect has a chance to concoct an alibi or reflect at length on the legal consequences of truthful confession. And yet, with each challenge, the Supreme Court always maintained the original Miranda ruling. The argument made by the team of Corcoran, Frank, and Flynn was simply too artfully constructed to do away with completely. Despite the depraved and senseless nature of Ernesto Miranda's original crimes, his legal journey left a lasting legacy in the pursuit of true justice. For the police, victims and suspects alike. Thanks for listening to Not Guilty. We'll be back Thursday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Not Guilty, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. See you next week. Not Guilty was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Not Guilty is written by Jack Bentel. I'm Vanessa Richardson.